Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Rick Martinez. I'm a cookbook author, video host, and I love taking two showers a day. I'm Carla Lolly Music. I'm also a cookbook author, video host, and I'm already sad that summer is over. Oh, Carla, say it's not so. <laughs> what is the official date of summer's end for you? I mean, by the 4th of July weekend, you're really just heading for that finish line, and um, <sighs> every day is getting a little bit shorter. This is why I moved to Mexico. <laughs> Rick and I have been solving and laughing our way through food problems together for more than a decade in test kitchens, in videos, and at magazines. And now we're doing it here on Borderline Salty, the show where we take your calls, boost your confidence, and make you a better, smarter, happier cook, just like us. Today we've got advice on sandy mussels, ugh, the worst, making homemade tortilla, the best, and we'll even settle a food debate for one of our callers. But before we get into it, I want to share that this week's segment of Tell Me Something Good is brought to you by the Sonos Move, a powerful and portable smart speaker for listening all around your home and beyond. Soundtrack your summer with Sonos. Discover Move plus other speakers and soundbars at Sonos.com. Okay, Rick, now tell me what's good. Okay, Carla, I know you're going to love this. So for those that may not know, Carla and I are both very big fans of Cheetos. Yes, that's right. Love a Cheeto. Love a Cheeto. So I have to admit something. I am not normally given to basically trying new flavors of chips that I love in the U.S. So I'm a big fan of nacho cheese flavored Doritos and Cheetos and cheese puffs. And there's some like pretty crazy funky flavors here. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I decided I needed a Cheeto and 
I was going to like just try it yeah. and see what it's all about. So the common flavor here of Cheeto is very different. Mm-hmm. It's a milder cheese. It's not quite as sharp as the one in the U.S. It's a little bit weirdly creamier in some weird way. Mm. But it has this really delicious kind of subtle, smoky, hatch chili-type flavor. Nice. Not super, super spicy, not like flaming Cheeto, but it's just really, really good. To be honest, it's almost like taking a Cheeto from the U.S. and dipping it in a bowl of chili con queso. It's that good. Sign me up. Is this crunchy or puffy? Crunchy. I, You know, I haven't seen that many puffs here, but, you know. Crunchy all the way. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still on the search for the... Flaming Hot Puffy Cheeto because it was like a rare, you know, limited release thing. And I've seen videos of people eating them, and they're impossible to find. So you could make a lot of money with these, like, rare book of Cheetos. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you (laughs) start shipping these back to the U.S. or making videos where you sample all the flavors that we can't get, and people would probably lose their minds. Yeah. So, Carla, now you tell me something good. Well, I had a very big first recently after, you know, sort of spending the two years of the pandemic watching every single franchise of the Below Deck Empire, Below Deck Sailing Yacht, Below Deck Med, Below Deck Down Under, Below Deck, everything of Below Deck. I finally had my very first espresso martini. Whoa. Yeah. Because they drink them all the time on Below Deck. Every time the crew goes out, they order eight espresso martinis to kick, <laughs> off the, <laughs> to kick off the night. And I just never had one. And I love coffee liqueur. I love black Russians. I love a white Russian. I love coffee. I love espresso. So it just seemed like this is something I'm going to love. I just didn't have the cojones to order one because I thought it was like kind of, I don't know, just like silly. Right. Um, Or that the bartender would make fun of me or something like that. But on Sunday, Fernando and I drove to Connecticut and then drove back to the city and got back around 2.30 p.m. And we were both hungry. And I was like, let's go out for lunch. And I was like, I just, I'm trying to figure out my first move here. And I don't know if I want a cocktail or an iced coffee. And then I was (laughs) like, wait a minute, there's a drink that combines these two things. And that drink is an espresso martini. And the restaurant that we went to, it was actually on their, like, house cocktail menu. Wow. So I felt empowered. You know, I was like, they want me to order this. Yeah. So wait, what effect did it have? Like, were you, like, pumped and loosened (laughs) up all at the same time? Yeah, you get, like, a little buzz from the coffee, and then you're getting, like, the little buzz from the vodka and the coffee liqueur. I don't know if it, like, did what it's supposed to do in terms of that, like, going out with the crew for a party. Because after lunch, we came back to the house and I promptly fell asleep on the couch for three hours. So. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I always felt like coffee drinks never really did what they needed to do. Like, I just feel like I'm going to have, like, my cold brew or my shot of espresso. Yeah. And then I'll have, like, a vodka tonic or something like that. Yeah, it's almost like they cancel each other out, but maybe because I only had one, you know? Maybe if you had had eight. Yeah, like, in the Red Bull and vodka years, not that I experienced them, but, like, you would drink that all night, and then you would hallucinate. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, youth. Anyway, if you're ever at Leo Sourdough in Williamsburg, order the espresso martini because they make it beautifully. Carla, I think I'm ready for some listener questions. Hey, Rick and Carla, this is Thane. I live out on Long Island, and I am lucky enough to have a lot of fresh mussels on the beach. And so I like to collect them, but I always have the problem. How the hell do you get the sand out of them? I have tried soaking them. I have done salt water. And no matter what I do, they end up gritty, and my friends are sitting there crunching on sand, and I am just at my wit's end. Please. Help me love you both. Oh, Thane. The plight of the wild mussel forager. He toils and toils. <laughs> to no avail. Oh, well, we have solutions for you, Thane. I have not had the pleasure of, like, harvesting my own mussels from rocks or <laughs> by, <laughs> on the hull of a ship. But because I live here on the ocean— a lot of the mussels we get are harvested from local rocks. And so mm -hmm. what I've ended up doing is I actually soak them in salted water, which I know, Thane, you said that you do. I end up doing it several times. So minimally, like three times, maybe four or five times. So basically, I just put a lot of salt in a bowl of cold water, add the mussels, toss them together, get the salt to dissolve, let them sit in the refrigerator, preferably over ice if you're in a warm climate like I am, and then pull them out after about an hour, drain the water, and do the process again. And, mm -hmm. and you'll see the amount of sediment that is being expelled by the mussels. And I also use a glass bowl. So literally just lift the glass bowl over your head, look at see how much sand and sediment are at the bottom. And then if there's a lot, you just keep doing that until you don't see anything else, and then they should be good to go. Yeah, I think that's a great method. I mean, this is very similar to how to purge clams and scrub clams. Yeah. I like to start with a brand new green scrubby or a really firm natural bristle brush. And I just put the mussels in a bowl under gently running water, kind of picking each one up and, you know, sort of holding each one under that running water. You have to scrub front side, back side, and then especially get into the area around the hinge then move that into a colander, then rinse them, you know. But sometimes it's just not perfect. So if the mussels have been very gritty and you know from washing them by hand and purging them that there is a good amount of sediment, what I would do is steam them open in like a flavorful liquid but not go crazy with a lot of aromatics, some maybe leek, shallot, garlic, a splash of wine, some water, open the mussels up, and then actually pull the meat out of the shell. You'll be able to tell how gritty things are when you actually touch them. And then take that cooking liquid and strain it through a fine mesh strainer or a coffee filter, you know, put into a regular sieve. And that way, any grit that came off of them during the cooking process that maybe came off the shell, you're not going to end up with that in the liquid. And then you might have to, like, give the mussels a little swishy-swish in some, like Rick said, some salted water after, the way you might swish around steamer clam, which we get a lot in the Northeast that are very sandy, too. Once they're open, they kind of get a little dip in some salted water to wash off any grit that's left and then, you know, put them back in the liquid that they created when they opened. 
But the upshot is, is like even, you know, going through this process, they're going to be so incredibly flavorful mm-hmm. that swishing them in a little bit of water to purge any remnants of the grit is not going to take any flavor away. They're just going to be really incredibly delicious and sand-free. Yeah, and like they were also free. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're wild. They're foraged. <laughs> you just have to put a little labor into them. And also just put your friends to work. Like buy a package of six scrubbies and... Invite your friends over, open up some wine, and go, you know what? You want dinner? Scrub. Exactly. Hello, caller. You're on the line with Rick and Carla. Hi, Rick and Carla. My name is Sasha, and I'd love to learn more about caviar. It's a world that I know nothing about, but I'm really interested in exploring, specifically looking for what are some good caviars that are like less than $100 an ounce, how to find caviars that are sustainably farmed. I know sometimes the production of caviar can be really cool and some interesting ways to serve it beyond, you know, just some like a potato blini. Um, Would love your advice. Thanks for your help. Yeah, caviar is expensive. It's kind of one of its defining characteristics. But it's so worth it. I know. I truly, I love caviar and, you know, the price is definitely a sign of how difficult it is to produce, you know, both from the fishing to the processing to the brining to the packing, and it's extremely perishable. So it is one of those things that it being expensive is kind of a mark of quality. There are a couple black caviars. I don't know if you've had the hackleback or the paddlefish caviars that are black caviars. They're not great. They're kind of muddy. The eggs are kind of small. You know, they don't pop. So I worry that substituting a less expensive product is not going to give you that, like, caviar is a treat payoff. Right. I mean, I think that's a part of the experience of it. I recognize that they're super expensive. I also very infrequently have them. But when I do... It's a special occasion, and it's a treat. If you think about truffles, for example, right? It's, again, the same thing. They're difficult to forage. and They're rare. Um, they're rare. They only grow in certain locations under specific conditions. But they also have a very distinctive flavor that sets them apart from any other fungus. Right. And so, to me, I would rather have that one caviar experience once a year or once every two years and enjoy it and create this whole moment and memory around it than to try and find something that's going to be lackluster, as you said. Maybe it's muddy. Maybe it's not as good. I'm going to spring for the thing that's going to make me really, really happy and then hold on to that memory. I mean, I basically have the exact same relationship to this luxury item that, you know, sometimes you're lucky enough to have somebody else picking up the check and experience it in a restaurant. But the one time that I serve it at home is on Christmas Day. Every year for Christmas Day, we do a big bagel brunch and Russ and Daughters bagels and fresh cream cheese. And what I usually do is I will, you know, depending on how, how well the year had gone, I'll buy as much of the real caviar as I can budget for. And then 
On the side, or in addition, I will also get French trout roe, which I really love. Mm. It has, like, a great snappy pop to it. It's not as salty as salmon roe. The eggs are nice and small. They're this beautiful color orange. And that is, like, a fraction of the price. So I can get a really big can of it, and it looks like opulence. It looks like indulgence. It looks like a really big treat. It makes you feel like you're— just having that, like what you said, once a year special indulgence. And, you know, eating it on a bagel as opposed to a blini, I can vouch for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, really. I mean, you could put it on a tire and it would be delicious. <laughs> yeah, as we say to my sugar-addicted son, it wouldn't be a treat if you got to have it every day. And I would apply that same thinking to caviar. Wait for the special occasion, New Year's Eve, your birthday, someone else's birthday, Christmas, Hanukkah, <laughs> and then go for it. The rest of the year, you know, chicken eggs. <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> All right, caller, what do you got? Hi, Carl and Rick. This is Emily calling from Toronto. So, I describe rich food as something that's fairly fatty, heavy, something that's kind of creamy, like a rich pasta sauce, whereas my friends would prioritize how sweet something is in its eligibility of being described as something that's rich. So they would not describe a pasta sauce as rich. I'm thinking like an Alfredo or some kind of like creamy rosé sauce. No, they don't think it's rich. So my question for you guys is how do you guys define something that is rich and help me please win this debate because I really feel like I'm kind of right. I think I'm in Emily's camp. I would describe rich foods as being full of fat and, you know, whether that's cream, butter, olive oil, or animal fat. But to me, the richness is really, it's that kind of stick-to-your-bones property. It can be a rich dessert, certainly, mm-hmm, full mm-hmm. of cream and butter, but also, like, a rich sauce or stew or gravy. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't really think of it in terms of sweetness. No, to me, richness is anything on the palate that you can't get a break from. So mm. those fatty flavors really coat your palate, and I guess there is a sweetness to some dairy fat. Mm-hmm. But I also think of like a flourless chocolate cake as being very rich because, again, there's kind of no break from what that one singular flavor is, which right. will have a lot of dairy fat in it. But also the chocolate, that bittersweet flavor, it's just a lot. You know, you can have a, a rich dessert that's very sweet, but I wouldn't eat a ripe summer peach that is like just dripping with sweet juices and say, this is a rich peach. Right. Because it's not, as you said, lingering on my palate. It's not coating my palate. There's a lot of juice, but it's a very momentary sweetness that once I've swallowed, it's gone, and then I go in for another bite. Right. Yeah, so I love being a debate settler and a tiebreaker, and in this case, we can just... Give it to Emily. She's she's right and her friends are wrong. Boom. <laughs> Thank you, next. Borderline Salty, you've reached us during working hours. My name is Mackenzie Schultz, and 
My boyfriend recently got me a beautiful tortilla crust, and I'm so excited for all of the summer grilling adventures that I will have with this tortilla press. I recently tried making tortillas from scratch using the press and failed miserably. They turned out super thick and just didn't have the pliable, supple texture that you're looking for in a tortilla. Um, whenever I would flatten them and take them out, they would just shrink back into the thick tortilla that I'm not looking for. So how do you use a tortilla press and get those supple, beautiful tortillas that you can just put on the grill and they grill up super nicely and are super pliable for whatever toppings and meat that you decide to put in? I am so excited that Mackenzie's actually making her own tortillas. That makes my heart so happy. I think, though, this may not be a function of the press because if you're pressing down and they're still thick, it sounds like it might be more a function of the dough that you're using. I'm not certain whether you're using a dried masa harina and then reconstituting it in water or if you're using fresh masa. But in either case, it sounds like there may not be enough water mm -hmm. in your masa. So whether you've bought the masa fresh from a tortilleria or whether you're using a masa harina, you probably just need to add a little more water. Mm -hmm. And what I normally do is if I'm kneading the dough, I'll add water maybe like a tablespoon or two at a time, mix it in. And it will start out being sticky, and it'll probably stick to your fingers. But after you let it sit for about five or ten minutes, the corn will absorb the water, and it shouldn't stick to your hands. And another tip for using a tortilla press, which I actually recently learned, what you should do is have two pieces of plastic of different thicknesses. So maybe you use a freezer bag on one side, and on the other side, use maybe a sandwich bag or a grocery bag. So you have two different grades of plastic. And even if your dough is really sticky, it won't stick to the thinner side. So mm. you peel the thicker side off first, and then you put the uh, the masa on your hand, and then you peel off the thinner plastic and then put it on the kumal or the mm. griddle mm. to cook. And so that will ensure that you get the maximum amount of moisture in your dough without it sticking to your hand or the plastic. Here in the States, would you direct someone to go to a tortilleria or to a Latin market and see if they can get fresh masa there? Yeah, so I think in most major cities, there's probably a place that makes their own tortillas. And if you go there, even if they don't necessarily generally sell to the public their masa, mm -hmm. you can just ask them, I would love to buy like a pound or two of masa and they'll just sell it to you. Like they're usually like really open about that kind of thing. Just tell them Rick sent you. I think there's time to take one more call. Hi, Rick and Carla. My name is Lisa. Something I'm afraid of is hard boiled eggs. I know how to cook them, but every time I go to peel them, the little bits of the shell stick to the egg and I end up with about half as much egg as I should. And I'm wondering what I can do about this. I've heard that if you cook with older eggs, sometimes this won't happen, but what can I do if I want to use fresh eggs that I've just bought? Thanks so much. I mean, a thing that people don't realize is that the shelf stability of 
an egg as long as it's refrigerated is <laughs> like forever. <laughs> months and months and months. Yeah. Like if there was a use by date, it would be, you know, 10 months from now or something. If Lisa's shopping for her eggs at a farmer's market, that's going to be problematic. The fresher the egg, the more that inner membrane is going to stick to the egg white. So you want to go and get, quote-unquote, regular eggs at the grocery store because they just, they've been around longer. But shocking the egg after hard boiling in really, really cold, very icy water can also help get that membrane to, like, shrink back and separate, and that will make the peeling easier. Wait, when you hard-boil an egg, how many—I want to know how you make your hard-boiled egg. I, first of all, I don't really like hard-boiled eggs. Okay, but well, <laughs> let the record show. <laughs> if I'm doing the jammy yolk, that's, like, the only way that I'll eat it. So it's boiling water, mm-hmm. eggs go in, five minutes, shock and ice bath for one minute, and then peel. Okay. That's my egg. It's jammy egg or nothing. Yeah, you're a jammy egg guy. I like a not— overdone yolk. I want it just set. So you want to go jammy, five. You want it a little bit creamy, seven. You want it fully cooked all the way through, nine to ten. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can listen to the competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. So before we take off, it is time for No Thank You Please. This is a segment of the show where we talk about ingredients that some people love and some people hate, and we think everybody should get to try. And today we are talking about... Tomatoes! Ah, tomatoes. Okay, Carla, I have a confession. I'm all ears. I am officially coming out of the pantry for this one. (laughs) Okay. So, when I was a child... Mm Mm-hmm. I kind of hated tomatoes. Hated tomatoes? I know. I know. It's just like, God, I was such a stupid little kid. (laughs) (laughs) What was it about it that, like, and we're talking about raw tomatoes or, like, Raw tomatoes, yeah. Just raw tomatoes. Yeah, I mean, I still ate spaghetti and meatballs. Don't get me wrong. Okay. So my parents grew tomatoes. And I remember, like, you know, during summertime, they— Always overplanted. Mm-hmm. So there were just like literally buckets of tomatoes mm-hmm. all over the house. And I just remember like every meal, there were just cut tomatoes all over my plate. And they just like it was a texture thing. Like they, the, the seeds were slimy mm-hmm. and kind of runny and juicy. And then, you know, I grew out of that quickly, thankfully. I think with puberty came my love affair for tomatoes. <laughs> but um, my parents retired and then went on vacation and we're like, we need you to water the garden and pick all the tomatoes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's the middle of summer. I was literally harvesting like eight and nine gallons of tomatoes a day. Oh my God. And I'm like, I'm trying to like can these motherfuckers. (laughs) And like I was making like vats of tomato sauce and like trying to freeze it. And I just remember cursing my parents. And I was so angry at them. Like they left at the height of tomato season and left me with like all of the canning responsibilities. Looking back, it's probably one of the best food moments of my life just because I was literally surrounded by fresh, amazingly delicious tomatoes. Well, I have a confession for you. Ooh, yes. I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but I actually married someone who claimed to hate raw tomatoes. Oh, my God, I can't. My dear husband, Fernando, when we started dating— Things would come up, you know, what do you want on your sandwich or let's get the caprese salad or like, you know, raw tomato moments. And he was like, oh, no, I don't like raw tomatoes. And I was like, you don't, what? Do you have a heartbeat? Like, what's wrong with you? And it was all about the seed packet that has the kind of gelatinous Mm -hmm. sort of, and it's like holding all the seeds in there. Like that gooey thing really freaked him out. He really didn't like it. So, you know, I was like, you're going to have to figure this out because like I'm 100% Italian. 
and and like we're, we'll have to kick you out of the family. Like at some point, it's going to be a problem. <laughs> so there was this one dinner. And I think it was the first time that my mom ever cooked for him at home, and my mom came out and put down this giant platter of beautiful heirloom tomatoes that had been every different color and size and shape and overlapping and on this thing. Uh And they had just been drizzled with, like, really good olive oil and flaky salt and some pepper. And she was, like, dropped it off and went back inside to get some other part of the meal. And I looked at him, and I was like, you know you're going to have to eat that, right? And he was like, he was like, (laughs) I know. And I was like, because if you don't eat it, she's going to notice. And then it's going to be like, how come, you know, you're not having tomato? And then you're going to have to tell her that you don't like raw tomato. And then she's going to try to go back inside and, like, make you a different side dish. And, like, I know you don't want that attention. And he was like, nope, absolutely not. Can't have that happen. So that was the turning point. He had to eat it and be polite and, like, totally 100% do a no-thank-you-please bite. And he ate the tomatoes, and he was like, actually, they're really good. See, that is like the most beautiful example of a no thank you, please. (laughs) Yeah. It's all about just trying. Right. You know? Textbook. I also think people think they don't like tomatoes because they eat them out of season. And an out-of-season tomato is terrible. It's rock hard. It's mealy. It has no flavor. It's bitter. It's just nasty. So this is truly the most wonderful time of the year to fall in love with tomatoes. And that's it for this week's episode of Borderline Salty. But don't worry, we'll be back next week. As always, you can find recipes and recommendations from this week's episode in our show notes. If you have a question or a fear you want us to help you through, you can always leave us a voicemail at 833-433-FOOD. That number again is 833-433-3663. Borderline Salty is an original production by Pineapple Street Studios. We're your hosts. I'm Rick Martinez. I'm Carla Lolly Music. You can find links to our work in the show notes for this episode. Natalie Brennan is our lead producer. Janelle Anderson is our producer. Our managing producer is Agarenish Ashagre. Our assistant producer is Maria Roscoe. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Mixing and engineering by Davy Sumner and Jason Richards. Our assistant engineers are Sharon Bardalis and Jade Brooks. Original music from our very own Raj Makija. Additional music from Vincent Vega, Spring Gang, and Glovebox, courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Legal services for Pineapple Street are provided by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Our executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. We appreciate Thane, Sasha, Emily, Mackenzie, and Lisa for calling in this week. And thanks to you for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. We love you. You're the best. (laughs) You're the best, but you got to go. But you got to come back. Yeah, come back next week. See ya. See ya.